listening to Story City Church in Granada Hills, California. We exist to glorify God by leading communities into healthy relationships with Jesus and with others. And here is this week's message. John chapter 6, verses 28 through 40. What can we do to perform the works of God, they asked. Jesus replied, this is the work of God, that you believe in the one he has sent. What sign then are you going to do so that we may see and believe you, they asked. What are you going to perform? Our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness. Just as is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you bread from heaven, but my father gives you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. Then they said, sir, give us this bread always. I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry, and no one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. But as I told you, you've seen me, and yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will not come to me, and the one will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. This is the word of the Lord. You can have a seat. Good morning, Story City. How's everybody doing today? Good, great. Uh, my name is Chris Wozniki. For those of you who don't know me, I am one of the elder candidates here. Um, you know, just the other day, I was uh, scrolling through Instagram and just scrolling through stories. And if you ever do that, you know, sometimes it suggests like, hey, you can make a reel um, and just like throws up all these uh, these old pictures, right? These throwback pictures um, and it adds some background music and you can just post it as a reel. So this happened to me. Um, there was this real memory uh, of my oldest daughter, Shiloh, back when she was celebrating her third birthday. Um, she he is now seven, so that was quite a while ago, uh, and it put me in a little bit of a nostalgic mood, so um, I started looking through old Instagram stories, and uh, I came across this one right here, which is Abby, if you've seen her running around, her first time, I believe it was her first time, in the snow, so uh, there's several pictures of her. Obviously, she doesn't like it in the beginning because snow is cold, um, and there she is, just playing in it. Why don't we get to have snow outfits that are like full on like <laughs> things like that? Um, so that was her first time. Uh, my kids love the snow. I don't know what it is about snow. To me, it is cold. It is wet. Sometimes it's yellow. I just don't like enjoy it at all. I think snow is gross. Uh, I also think sand is gross at the beach, but um, maybe that's just my problem. Uh, but they love it, and I actually blame Frozen for that. I think it's Frozen's fault um, that they have this love for snow. Um, I remember one time um, we were driving up to the snow uh, when Abby and Shiloh were a little bit older. So it wasn't their first time. Uh, and they were stoked that we were going. Like they had been like talking about it and just going to bed, like excited to go up to the snow the next day. And Shiloh is staring out the window. And we're pretty low down the mountain at this point. And she spots a patch of snow, 
right? But we're nowhere near the fresh stuff. Like, this is the beginning of the mountain. Um, it's just icy, brown, muddy stuff. Like, you know, like, if you're driving up to, like, Wrightwood or whatever, like, they're just, like, nasty patches until you get up there to the real snow. And she says, look, Abby, it's snow. And Abby just gets so excited. She's like, oh, I want to get out. I want to get out. And all I can think is like, ew, that snow is disgusting. Like, you're not going to be able to play in it. Um, so I say, oh, just, just wait. Like, we're almost there. You know, just another 30 minutes up the mountain, and we're going to be playing in, like, the fresh powder. But she doesn't get it, right? She wants to play in that snow. She's been waiting for snow. And obviously, there's snow right there. And Shiloh tries to, like, reason with her. She's the older sister. So she's like, oh, we can't build a snowman there. Right? She's right. It's literally just brown ice. Um, it's like, we're almost there, and we can throw snowballs. And Abby is just super frustrated, right? It's dirty. We're going to go to the pristine snow. And she has a mini meltdown. Because she doesn't get it, right? She's, she's a kid. Right, she's short-sighted. She's focused on the now, the snow that was right in front of her now, when in reality, there was something that was way better just up ahead another 30 minutes, which for a kid probably feels like two days, right? Um, so she couldn't see what was actually like waiting for her. She was just focused on what was in front of her. And this morning, we're going to look at a passage where we'll see some people who are also short-sighted. Um, they're satisfied with something lesser when, in fact, something greater is right in front of them. So uh, let's go ahead and pray, and we'll get started. Jesus, um, I just thank you for your word um, where you reveal yourself to us. Um, I pray that we would have open ears and open hearts to hear exactly what you want to say to us, um, that you would speak into our life, that we would be able to respond to it, that we would experience and encounter your grace um, in the middle of this text, Lord, um, that you would remind us of your goodness and your love for us. Praise in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, if you're visiting for the first time, this thing does not go down. If you're visiting for the first time uh, this morning, I'd like to welcome you. Um, you're actually catching us at a really good time. This is the kickoff of a brand new series. It's a really short series in the book of John. Um, you can see it's called I Am. We are looking at what are called the I Am statements. The Gospel of John uh, is one of four biographies about Jesus that we have in the Bible. Uh, and this particular book of the Bible is just full of metaphors and symbols. And in this book in particular, there are seven specific metaphors that Jesus uses to reveal his identity and what that actually means for us. For example, he calls himself the light of the world, the door, the good shepherd, the vine, the resurrection and life, the way, the truth, and the life. This morning, we're going to look at the first metaphor that he uses. So if you have your Bibles, uh, go ahead and open up uh, to John chapter 6. If you have a phone, uh, there are a bunch of Bible apps on their phone, or you can just Google it. We're going to be in John chapter 6. Um, and let me set the context for you uh, before we jump into the passage. So right before this passage we're looking at, Jesus had been gathering huge crowds uh, because he had been performing a bunch of miracles. So this large crowd is gathered with him uh, in this hill by the sea, and he spends a day teaching and healing and doing ministry and stuff. Um, and as the day starts to wrap up, 
it's getting late and people start to get hungry. And he asks his disciples, hey, there's like 5,000 men here, count the women and children, we're at like 10,000 plus people. Where can we buy bread to feed 10,000 people? Of course, Jesus is testing them with this question. He knows what he's going to do. Um, one of the disciples, Philip, he's a smart guy. Um, he looks at Jesus and says, well, there's a Costco down the street. They sell everything in bulk, right? No, they don't have Costco. Um, there's no way that they can get 10,000 loaves of bread for people. Um, he, plus, he says, we could never even afford to feed this many people. So Philip fails that test that Jesus had put in front of him. The next disciple, Andrew, uh, he speaks up. He's like, hey, there's a boy here with like two fish and five breadsticks. I mean, obviously, we can't feed the whole crowd, but like maybe we can snack on it, just like us disciples, like in the corner somewhere. Um, no, that's another fail, right? Both of these guys fail. So Jesus tells them to sit down. Um, he takes this kid's happy meal. He prays. He gives thanks. And he starts handing out the food. Next thing you know, the disciples are collecting leftovers. Leftovers from these two fish and five breadsticks. And all of a sudden, the people realize what happened. This man, Jesus, took two pieces of fish and five loaves, and he multiplied it and fed 10,000 people. And it just, like, clicks for them. It's like, imagine if this guy can do this with some food. What else could he do for us? Could he multiply money? Right? Can he multiply weapons to fight off the Romans who are colonizing us? And the gears just start to grind and plans are being formed and Jesus realizes what they're thinking. Verse 15 says, Therefore, when Jesus realized that they were about to come and take him by force to make him king, he withdrew again to the mountain by himself. So Jesus pieces out. Right? He goes and he, uh, he goes away from this crowd. The next morning, though, the crowd finds him on the other side of the sea, and that's right where we pick up on verse 26. Jesus answered, Truly I tell you, you're looking for me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate the loaves and were filled. Don't work for the food that perishes, but for the food that lasts for eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you, because God the Father has set his seal of approval on him. So he calls him out. You're only here because I fed you, aren't you? It's kind of like a puppy, right? Um, you give it some treats, it'll love you. It'll follow you. It'll just be right by your side. The second you're out of those treats, it's gone, right? And that's really where they're at. They want Jesus because of what he has to offer to them. Right? They have an agenda. Jesus is useful to them. He's useful for the things that they're already in pursuit of. Then he calls them out. He says, don't work for food that perishes, but for food that lasts for eternal life. And they hear that, and they're like, fine. Um, you say we need to do work to get you to do what we want? Fine, we'll do that. Okay, Jesus, what good works do you need for us to do? What religious hoops do you need us to jump through so we can finally get you to do what we want you to do? But they're showing that they don't get who Jesus actually is. Right? They're short-sighted. They don't understand how God actually works. Verse 29, Jesus says, This is the work of God that you believe in the one he has sent. Believe it. That's it. 
right? That's the work of God. That's what he's asking us to do, to just believe. I think it's worth stopping here for a second just to remember this gospel truth. This is a core truth of the gospel, that it is by grace through faith that you're saved, right? It's not through any of our works. It's not through anything that we've done so that none can boast. All we're called to do is just put faith in Jesus. That's what God is looking for from us. So let's keep going. Um, Jesus tells them, believe in me, that's what God wants, right? And he says to them, okay. They say, you want us to believe in you, so what sign are you gonna perform? Like, don't expect us to believe in you if you don't perform something for us. It's like, did they just literally forget the 5,000 fish and loaves and all that that just happened the day before? No, they didn't forget. Verse 30, um, they say, well, what are you going to perform then? Right? They want Jesus to put on a show for them. Right? They want Jesus to do magic tricks. Side note, um, I just saw on Instagram the other day a guy who turned a pigeon into a box of Popeye's chicken. <laughs> Crazy, crazy. Um, turning, I mean, yeah, I don't think that's what Popeye's is actually made out of. Probably made out of real chicken. Anyway, so they do some. They want him to do something spectacular for them, right? It's like remember, um, remember when you were a kid. Um, for some of us, that might be not that long ago. For some of us, that's a lot longer. Um, and if somebody came to you with like a question, right, and you didn't know the answer, they're like, how many moons does Saturn have? Um, and if you didn't know what to say, you would say, oh, of course I know how many moons Saturn has. Do you even know it? <laughs> Prove it, right? And then you'd get them to answer the question themselves and you'd be like, yeah, 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 that's the right answer. I was just checking if you actually knew it, right? It's just a trick to get them to do what you want them to do. And this is just a ploy for them to get Jesus to perform another miracle, right? You want us to believe, how about this time, do something bigger than a meal, right? Give us bread forever, just like Moses did. Moses gave us unlimited breadsticks and salad. Do that for us, Jesus. Verse 31, he says, our ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, just as it is written, he gave them bread from heaven to eat. That's what they say. Um, there's actually something going on here that I think is really interesting. They're pointing to the real agenda, right? It's not just bread. It's actually a political agenda. See, Moses was the guy who liberated the Hebrews from the oppression of Pharaoh, right? And the Jews were currently under the oppression of the Roman Empire. Moses was their deliverer. They were hoping for another political deliverer. Maybe Jesus was going to come and do that. Um, if you look at your Bibles, you'll see that there's a little letter at the end of verse 31. Uh, in my Bible, it's a little F. Um, that letter, if you follow the footnote, it tells you that it's referring to Exodus 16.4 and Psalm 78.24. Now, if you're studying your Bible on your own, you can just follow those footnotes, um, and, it'll, and it takes you to some really interesting places. In this case, it takes you to a psalm. And if you go to the psalm that it refers to, don't just read that verse, read the whole thing, you'll see what that psalm is about. That psalm is all about how God's people tested God, asking for miracles, constantly testing them, and never believing despite all that, G that God was doing for them. So that's a throwback to the Old Testament. Back to John 6. Um, they ask Jesus for a sign. What do signs do? Somebody tell me what signs are supposed to do. 
Point to something, yes, right, they point to something. They point to things, right? The miracles are supposed to point to something. They're supposed to point to who Jesus really is. Remember I said that this book has seven signs that point to his identity and what that means for us. And they don't see the sign, they just see the miracles, right? They don't see the sign that points to Jesus when they see Jesus' miracles. They see their desires, their ambitions, how Jesus fits into their plans. Verse 32, Jesus said to them, truly I tell you, Moses didn't give you the bread from heaven, but my father gives you true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. When they said this, they said, sir, give us this bread always. They don't get it. They're just oblivious to what Jesus is really getting at. So he drops the truth on them. Verse 35, I am the bread of life, Jesus told them. No one who comes to me will ever be hungry. No one who believes in me will ever be thirsty again. If you're taking notes, uh, this is our first main idea. Or not the first main idea. This is the main idea. And our first note for this morning is that Jesus offers us the only thing that truly sustains our life, himself. Jesus offers us the only thing that truly sustains our life, which is himself. Each of these seven I am statements tells us about who he is and what that means for us. And here, he uses the metaphor of bread. In the ancient world, bread was the basic sustenance of life. Most of us probably don't think that way, right? We like bread. We don't need it to live. Like, I go to Stonefire, I get those breadsticks. I want that, right? Go to Olive Garden, just unlimited breadsticks. Give them all to me, right? I don't even need any of the food. I'm just going to order breadsticks and salad. That's all I'm going to get. I don't feel like I need it. I want it, right? That's not how everybody feels. There are some people who need bread to live. Um, Check out this throwback clip. Some of you might remember this. This is the joy for me. I love bread. I love bread. I now just manage it, so I don't deny myself bread. I have bread every day. I have bread every day. Bread every day. Just don't deny myself the bread. Uh, most of us don't feel the same way that Oprah does about bread. Uh, but I think every culture has something that acts as like a basic sustenance that if you don't have it, you really can't survive. Like in my Guatemalan household growing up, that was tortillas and black beans. Like you had to have tortillas and black beans. Um, Jesus is the tortilla of life, right? For Jonathan Salas, it's plain white rice. He will tell you that. If there is no rice, it is not a meal. Um, For many of us, it's coffee, right? Jesus is the cold brew of life. You know, fill in the blank, right? Um, So he's speaking to this particular audience, and for them, it's bread. And and the audience would get that. Unlike us, they didn't get complete meals every day. Like, what am I going to eat today? Am I going to eat the habit? I mean, pokey from the pokey guy. Uh, Maybe Mexican food, kava, in and out. Like, you get to choose every single day. They didn't have those kinds of options for complete meals. Like, one thing you could guarantee, though, is bread. Like, if you had bread, your stomach is going to be full. Maybe you'll get something once a week that's like more of a complete meal, but you're guaranteed bread. So Jesus draws on this metaphor to say, I am like that bread. I am the thing that's going to sustain your life. The very thing that you can't live without. 
It's not that, like, I give you a bunch of other things, and that's why I'm bread. No, no, no. I am the thing that sustains itself. And these crowds, they were looking to Jesus for him to give them other things that temporarily sustain literal food, political power, material goods. And, like, we shouldn't look at them as though they're, like, fools who just, like, don't get it. It's like, oh, wow, obviously Jesus is the bread. Why are you guys focused on, like, some fish and loaves? It's like, no, we're all tempted to go to God and to ask him to give us other things that we think are going to sustain us besides Jesus himself. And the reality is that that's short-sighted. You know, those of you who are parents or who take care of kids uh, know how short-sighted kids are around food. They'll literally want a granola bar or like a piece of candy 10 minutes before dinner, right? They don't get it, right? They're they're gonna eat some junk now and then they won't eat their meal and then you'll have to feed them again 20 minutes after everybody's done eating because they're hungry again. That's food, right? Stop eating junk food right before dinner. It is short-sighted. And that's all of us when it comes to Jesus. We want the junk food, instead of the meal that Jesus has to offer to us. There's this British comedian um, who captures this dynamic really well. And I don't know where he's at spiritually, um, but I know that he's onto something with this quote. He's tapped into something which I think is really deep about how humanity is built. Uh, Let me read to you what Russell Brand, I know he's not like relevant today all that much, but he was a while ago. Uh, Listen to what he says about trying to be sustained. He says, There's the initial thrill of achievement. Oh my word, it's arrived. It's the same kind of thrill when you acquire a new pair of shoes you longed, craved, and you realize they're too tight. They're not as good as you hoped they would be when you walk around with them. And you realize you need nutrition from a higher source. You need something more valuable. Being rich and famous is like being presented with a glorious meal. It's utterly vacuous. There's no taste. There's no nutrition. It's tiresome. We have within us a yearning for something higher, for something more. Someone once told me that all desire is the desire to be with God in substitute form. Perhaps, just perhaps, we should draw attention not to the shadow on the wall, but to the source of life itself. What are you turning to to sustain your life? What are you turning to to fulfill you, to fill that spiritual hunger? What are you tempted to think is the actual source of life that's going to fulfill you and make you happy? We're designed to feed on God alone. Right? Everything else is going to leave us hungry. Uh, let me switch metaphors for a second. Um, leave the metaphor of bread behind. Um, think about your electronic devices for a second. I'm going to empty this bag out right here. Think about your electronic devices. Um, Your phone or whatever it is, it's designed to draw energy from a power source. So what do you do to keep it alive? Plug it in, right? You charge it. So if I can plug this thing in right here. Um, And when it's plugged, like this thing, this is a USB light bulb, which is kind of cool. When you plug it in to a power source, what happens? It has power, right? Duh. When you plug it into a power source that's designed to power it, what happens? Light, right? Because it's plugged in. Now, what happens when you try to plug it in 
to things that are not designed. Oh, I've unplugged the, the thing. <laughs> uh, what happens when you plug it into things that are not designed to power it? Anyone want to take a guess? No light. No light, right? Here's a, a thing that's not plugged into a wall. Has no battery, right? No light. Question is, what are you plugging into to get that power source? Is it... Oh, this is harder than I thought. You know what this is? This is uh, when your car doesn't have Bluetooth. Plug it in. Uh, is it your spouse? Are you trying to get life from them? There's no power there. Is it your kids? Is it your career? Is it good works? Right? Spiritual experiences? None of that is actually going to sustain because none of that actually has lasting power. But Jesus offers us himself. See? Little red light. As a source of power. When you plug into Jesus, there's life, right? There is light. Jesus himself is the greatest gift that he has to offer us. It's nothing else. It's Jesus himself. The good news, though, is that it doesn't just stop there. Right? He gives us himself to sustain us, but along with being part of him, united with him, there are other gifts that come along with that. If you're taking notes, our second point is this. Jesus offers us security. Security. Verse 36 says this. But as I told you, you've seen me, yet you do not believe. Everyone the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. This is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose none of those he has given me, but should raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, that everyone who sees the Son and believes in him will have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. The Christian life is a life that's grace from beginning all the way to end. Once you let that truth sink into your heart, it changes the way that you think about this whole Christianity thing because it's grace all the way down. You were saved by grace. You didn't do anything to earn your salvation. You weren't super spiritual. That's not why God chose you. You weren't a good person. That's not why God chose you. Right? You weren't especially sensitive to spiritual matters. That's not why God saved you. Right? None of those things. Do you know why God saved you? It has nothing to do with you. Right? The reason that God saved you was not because you bribed him, because you cajoled him. There's a vocab word for you. It's because he simply loved you and decided that he was going to die for you. Right? God saved you by his grace simply because he loved you. Nothing you did to earn that salvation. Nothing you did to deserve his grace. That also means that there's nothing you can do to undeserve his grace. Now, some of you might be a little bit hesitant at that point. You're thinking, like, okay, I, I get the first part, like, I didn't deserve it. What do you mean I can't, like, undeserve it? Are you saying I can't lose my salvation, that I'm secure in him? <clears throat> Does that mean then that, like, I can do whatever I want? Like, I'll always be saved no matter what? Like, I can go kill people, lie on my taxes, root for the 49ers, do all of that stuff and still be saved? Well, if you approach salvation like that, it shows that you don't actually get what grace is. 
Right, think of it this way. When a couple gets married, right, they make vows, right, till death do us part. Do those vows then mean that you can go do whatever you want in that relationship? Cheat, lie, abuse, whatever, because you made a vow till death do you part. If someone thought, you know what? You made a vow to me, now you're stuck with me? No matter how poorly I treat you, you would think that something's wrong with that person, right? You would think, wow, like, there's not a real relationship here. Like, he doesn't love her. He doesn't get what this whole, like, love and commitment thing is about. It's the same thing with grace. Like, if you really understood God's grace, you wouldn't think, oh, great, like, I'm saved, nothing can happen. Like, now I can go do whatever I want, and God's stuck with me. Because once saved, always saved. No, you would think, oh, wow, he did this for me? How can I cling to him? How can I fight for this relationship? That's the truth of the gospel. It's grace from beginning all the way to end. You didn't deserve it to get in. You can't undeserve it to get out. You're secure in Christ. And you might think, okay, um, I can't lose it. Are you sure? Like, yeah, you, you, you can't lose it. But not because you're so amazing, but because he is. There's this old hymn um, called Come Thou Fount of Every Blessing. I think we've sang it here maybe a couple times. Um, It says, Jesus sought me when a stranger, wandering from the face of God. He, to save my soul from danger, interposed his precious blood. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. We are prone to wander. That's just who we are. We're prone to abandon God and his ways. We're prone to flee into temptation because it's hard. Because it's actually hard to follow God. We're prone to draw sustenance to be fulfilled from other things. But again, the Christian life is a life of grace. Despite that proclivity to wander, the tendency to to walk away, he's a good shepherd. And good shepherds don't lose their sheep. A good shepherd is not going to let you wander off and die out in the fields, out in danger. You're secure, not because you yourself are capable of keeping yourself from wandering, but because he is. I love how um, John Calvin puts it. He says this. He says, so Christ is not the guardian of our salvation for just one day or even a few days, but he will take care of our salvation to the end. There's comfort in knowing that Jesus is going to take care of you till the end. Um, this, this week, I've mentioned before that I, I work for a ministry called Young Life. Just this week, we were driving up to camp, uh, or actually driving back from camp, and I had this realization um, that none of the kids in my car that I was driving have a father in their life. None of them. These kids know what it's like to be abandoned, to get passed on, to go from one foster home to another, from one grandma to another aunt's house. They know what it is to experience a lack of security. And at camp, they get the message that if everybody abandons them or passes them along, Jesus never will. He promises to walk with them every step of the way. You know, there might be a deep-seated fear in your heart, too, that am I ever going to do anything that will cause Jesus to abandon me? He promises he won't. And there's true power and freedom that comes from knowing that he sustains our journey the entire way. To quote Calvin again, he says, 
So let this become fixed in our minds that Christ has stretched out his hands to us, that he will not desert us in midstream, but as we rely on his goodness, we may confidently raise our eyes to the final day. If you're his, he will see you through the end. Jesus offers us security, but he also offers us another thing. He offers us a supernatural life. A supernatural life. Verse 44, it says this. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. Everyone who has listened to and learned from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. So, remember this. Uh, I said that the Christian life is a life of grace from beginning to the end. It's sustained by him and by him alone. Not by you, not by anything that you've done. That means that if you came to Christ... It wasn't because you were awesome, because you were already super holy, because you knew your Bible so well, because you grew up in a Christian home. It wasn't because you were really farts. Oh my gosh. It wasn't because you were really smart and figured it all out, uh, figured out that Christianity is true. If you came to Christ, it's because God did a supernatural work in you. Uh, There's this fantastic little book uh, called Why I Am a Christian by John Stott. It's super short. Um... Highly recommend it. Uh, And he asks, why am I a Christian? So he's sort of reflecting on his own life. And the conclusion that he comes to is this. He says, why I'm a Christian is ultimately due neither to the influence of my parents or my teachers, nor to the personal decision for Christ, but to the hound of heaven. What does he mean by the hound of heaven? He's referring to a poem written by... uh, poet, Francis Thompson, where Thompson uses this imagery of, you know, like the old-timey, like, uh, fox and the hound hunts, where, like, the hound obviously hunts the fox. Um, He uses that as the imagery of being hunted down by God's grace. It's the truth expressed in 1 John 4.19, that if we love Christ, it was because he loved us first. And that's really important to remember, because we're all broken, Since the fall, we've resisted God. Romans 3 says this. It says, there is none righteous, not even one, no one who understands, no one who seeks God. Sin has blinded all of us. Because of that, we can't actually see God for who he is until he peels off the scales that blind us from seeing him and his grace and the truth of the gospel. If you've put your faith in Jesus, I want you to stop and think for a second how you came to faith. Think about that. My guess is that if you look back in hindsight, you'll notice that God had been working behind the scenes, drawing you to himself, tugging at your heart. Maybe he put you in a family that clearly expressed the gospel to you. That's part of how he was drawing you in. Maybe he let you go through some really hard times. And when you turn to him, you saw him there just with arms wide open. Or maybe you hit rock bottom and you noticed, oh wow, he was there the entire time alongside of me. My own story is a story of him speaking in subtle and sometimes not so subtle ways as he ripped the idols of my heart out of my hands. It was a story of pursuit. Despite my decisions to turn my back on him, and if you came to faith, you know that it was because he was doing things in your life. Hindsight is twenty twenty. You'll look back and see, oh, wow, he, he was actually doing something in me. If you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, 
the fact that you're here this morning, that you either felt the desire to show up to church or that somebody dragged you in here is a sign that God is doing something in you, that he's drawing you to himself. It's because faith is supernatural. It's a gift of grace. The Christian life is grace from beginning to the end. There's one final gift he offers us. It's a destiny. Jesus offers us a destiny. Verse 47 says this. Truly I tell you, anyone who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness and they died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that anyone may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of it, this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I give for life of the flesh of the world is my flesh. There's a promise of resurrection here. At the end, all those who know Christ are promised resurrection everlasting life. But living forever isn't the goal. Just having a really long life and never dying, that's not the goal. Right? Eternal life is the goal. Eternal life is a little bit misleading, that phrase, eternal life. Uh, it sounds as if, as if it just means like, you get to live forever, eternal. Right? Eternal life is just actually a weird translation of a phrase that literally, it's very awkward in English, literally just means life of the ages. See, that's why we don't translate it like that, because what does that even mean? Life of the ages or eternal life is qualitatively different than just everlasting life. It's not less than that, but it's more. Eternal life is your destiny. It's a life that goes on and on without end, but your destiny is something more than that. Eternal life is life that's sustained by God now. It begins now, the moment you put your faith in Jesus. Jesus actually defines it for us. John 17, 3. This is how he tells us what eternal life means. He says, this is eternal life, that they may know you, the only true God and the one you have sent, Jesus Christ. Eternal life is about knowing God. Not just knowing as in like, oh, I know who he is, like I've heard of him, but intimately knowing God. Eternal life is about sharing in the love between the Father and the Son through the Spirit. Verse 57 says this, Just as the living Father sent me, and I live because of the Father, so the one who feeds on me will live because of me. Eternal life is sharing in the very life of the Father and the Son, being sustained by the very life of God. And that's our destiny. That's what he offers us. A life marked by knowing God intimately, by sharing in the joy that exists between the Father and the Son, having the source of life that God himself has. And that all begins now, the moment you put your trust in Jesus. So what's our response to this? Verse 56. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood remains in me and I in him. We remain in him that's the metaphor he's using, by turning to him constantly and consistently. We unplug from others and plug into him alone. We turn from spiritually unfulfilling food to the only thing that truly sustains us, which is Jesus himself. We remind ourselves of that, that he is the food that truly sustains when we take communion. That's one of the ways that we remember that he is the source of our life. And he's the only thing that fulfills. As we take communion this morning, um, I would encourage you <clears throat> to just dwell on that truth, to meditate on that, 
that he has offered us the grace that we need to sustain us, to fulfill us, to bring us joy, that he offers us a destiny, that he offers us security, that he offers us his love. I'm going to go ahead and pray for us um, as we step into communion. And I would just encourage those of you who have put your faith in Christ to go to the tables to take and eat this bread, which reminds us that Jesus is the bread of life. Now, if you haven't put your faith in Jesus yet, I would just ask you to hold back because that symbolism, that metaphor of Jesus being sustaining bread, that's not really going to hit where it's supposed to because he isn't that bread for you yet. Um, But I would just invite you uh, to talk to somebody if that's something that you are interested uh, in doing. We're going to have people on the sides uh, who are willing to talk to you and pray with you if that's something that you're interested in. Uh, Let me go ahead and pray for our time. Jesus, we, uh, we just thank you for what you offer us, God, that you have offered yourself to us, um, that that is the greatest gift that we have, you. Lord, help us to remember the truth of that. Help us to live our lives being sustained by you as we go about our weeks, as we go about our days, just remembering who you are and what you've done for us. Praise in Jesus' name. Thank you for joining us for this week's message. If you'd like to join us in person, our services are Sundays at 10 a.m. and we're located at 11011 Havenhurst Avenue in Granada Hills. Find us on Instagram at StoryCityGH or online at StoryCityChurch.com. Go and be the church.